Casio 2409. What I'm going to do today is just give you a brief overview of the module. I'm going to go through the various topics that we're going to cover and show you some pictures of the various things we'll do during the uh, course of the year. Uh, and then I'm going to have a kind of half lecture at the end where I'm going to cover uh, pixels and colours, a very simple starting point. Uh, so I'm going to go week by week what we're going to cover through the course. I'm going to start off covering 2D graphics. There's several reasons why I'm going to start at such a simple level. A, because I know after coming back from summer, everyone's pretty brain dead and needs a kind of slow introduction. Um, B, it has been traditional for computer graphics courses to cover quite a lot of 2D graphics, talk about line algorithms, circle algorithms, and to kind of stay with the tradition of that, I'm going to cover some of the elements here. By the way, the pictures are just chosen at random to illustrate what I'm talking about. Uh, but I'm not really going to dwell on that much nowadays, certainly not as much as a, uh, an old-school computer graphics module would, largely because much of this stuff is done in hardware now, and it's of less interest to us as software engineers, which the software engineers clearly are, and the game developers basically are as well. Um, but I'll cover the basics there. It does help me, in passing from 2D graphics, I'm able to talk about some key elements that apply to all graphics anyway, which is pixels, the colours of pixels, blending of pixels, and other aspects that actually become quite relevant when we talk about some more advanced graphics later. So we're going to cover that for three weeks. Um, you see the kind of things on the screen there? Some basic 2D geometry, basic pixel work. It's a gentle introduction, but don't let that fool you. While these first three weeks won't be feel particularly hard, the module as a whole is a fairly tough module, actually. I'd say everyone passed it last year, so whilst I say it's a tough module, people get through it, but it is quite demanding as you go through it. It's got a very much one of those second year curves where it starts flat, then goes steep, and then it flats off at the end. So be aware of that. You can't, uh, you can't slip through this one. Uh, at the same time, I'm not making it overly hard just for the sake of it. I'm covering what's practically necessary to get graphics working on current hardware. It is very, very much a practical module, uh, and I'm going to talk be illustrating techniques from a theoretical level, but then we're going to practice nearly all of them uh, actually in the labs. So, okay, so we're going to start with 2D graphics. We'll have to do a, a certain amount of mathematics and, and some... <coughs> we're going to start by introducing the basic 3D mathematics and the simple 3D geometry, which extends from 2D geometry to maths essentials, you know, sines, cosines, moduluses, other things like that. Nothing I would have thought surprised too many of you, but just want to cover them for for completeness. I want to touch on something that might surprise all of you, even though you software engineers who are, who are actually a year ahead of the rest of the guys, uh, and that's some of the C++ issues. We're going to be using C++ as our language of choice, um, and we're going to have to look before we really delve deeply into it at some of the issues, that, some of the hidden gotchas, if you like, of C++, in particular the numerical limitations it has and some of the assumptions that aren't sensible to make when you're working in C++. That's often quite an interesting lecture for those who are really interested in the software development. It may well help you in other uh, aspects of software engineering as well. All this is obviously preparation before we can actually start on 3D work proper. It'll take a week or two. I'm still a little bit... The modules, as uh, illustrated on the internet, on WebCT, it's not quite on WebCT yet, by the way. It will be on WebCT on tomorrow. Um, but as you see the module, it's all out there, it's all 24 weeks of out there, you can have a, you know, look at all 24 weeks of content. It's pretty much accurate, and I wouldn't dissuade you or push, put you off from reading the module content on the internet. But be aware, it's going to be just rearranged slightly. This was a new module from last year, 
and you know, learn some lessons from how it was taught last year. We're going to be doing some slight reordering, slight changing to the, the actual plan of the module. So that's why I've got things like one to two weeks, because I just don't know exactly how long I'll spend on that. I'll just maybe make a call on that just near time. Moving on, I think we need to start on the, the bit that scares most people about 3D, uh, which is the real 3D mathematics, and at the core of all of it, the work with matrices. Now, most people, hobbyists who look at 3D graphics, get quite often get bogged down in the mathematics of 3D, uh, and certainly those diagrams uh, show that we're going to be working, you know, it's, it's not going to be trivial. Um, matrices, you will have covered ever so slightly in the first year, you probably passed over them when you were doing your problem solving module, but you didn't really look at them in the depth that we will, and we need to for uh, 3D graphics. I will try to keep it as approachable as possible. I'm going to spend a full three weeks on 3D coordinate spaces, transforming between spaces and the work we need to do with cameras to get it all into 2D anyway. Three weeks is a key topic, it's a critical topic, it's something I always examine on as well. Uh, but I, I could go much further, but I'm going to stop, I'm going to give you just what you need to know and only a little bit more. But then I'm going to give you the directions and the, you know, the references to take it further if you're minded, if your maths is good, if you enjoy that kind of thing. Um, so I'm trying to strike a nice balance between, you know, giving the material for those who are strong enough to take the material, but not overloading those people who particularly, you know, aren't really deep mathematicians. No, but I really have to flag up right from the beginning that here's a critical area. It's a little bit tricky. But then we can get into the meat of it. We spent a few weeks doing some background, now we can start to actually work and make some 3D graphics. In fact, I'll introduce some 3D graphics whilst we're doing those previous slides, whilst we're going through some of this, we'll, we'll start to work on some 3D. Uh, and we'll start introducing the graphic APIs, and in particular, we'll be working with DirectX for the main part of the module. Now, that's a decision I've had to make, uh, and I had some other options. So, who here is familiar with any DirectX? Who here is familiar with OpenGL? Oh, good. I'm glad we don't have too many OpenGL fanboys, because I'm fine with OpenGL, I'm fine with OpenDX uh, as well. But I had to make a decision. There are two major 3D graphic APIs generally used, DirectX, which is Microsoft specific of course, PC only, or well, Xbox as well in a, in a kind of sense, uh, and then OpenGL which is more platform independent, uh, and we do have some people who, who love one and hate the other and vice versa. I had to make a decision based on what I thought was current and relevant, bearing in mind that the vast majority, you know, there's a, a large majority of game students here, and bearing in mind that OpenGL has had a kind of rocky path. So I've chosen DirectX, but I will do some OpenGL as I'll show in the next slide. So we're going to look at DirectX for the main, main course of this module to look at, try to get our 3D graphics up and, you know, drawing things on the screen. We're going to look at the rendering pipeline, which I'll explain more about at the time. Input data and the materials we use, the transformations, which is actually applying the matrix work that we did on the previous slide there. Looking at lighting, a little examples of lighting there, some of the pictures, and the actual nitty-gritty of getting the pixels rendered on the screen and blending. And so the 2D work will help with the last bit, because we'll have worked with pixels in the 2D area, so when we come to pixel rendering in 3D, we'll kind of know some of the techniques that are used there. Now I have to warn you now that DirectX is very intricate. It's not actually deeply complex, it's just detailed. There's so much detail in it. And even you might know how to set up you know, a basic DirectX app, but still there may be many parameters or settings that you're still not quite sure on the meaning of. Again, it's not because they're complex, it's just because there's so much of it. And so this process can be a bit torturous at first, and it's going to take five weeks to get through it. But I've fully documented at, at great length all the stuff. So all the material will be there, 
for you to understand what the various aspects of DirectX are doing, and I'll be able to highlight to you which bits you should be focusing on and which bits you can safely ignore for a while until you get more advanced. It would have to be said that that was one of the decisions that I had to make when I'm choosing between DirectX and OpenGL. OpenGL is traditionally a bit simpler to teach, uh, whereas DirectX is a little bit more complex. But again, the issues surrounding OpenGL led me, led me in DirectX. But I am going to touch on OpenGL, and those pictures have absolutely nothing to do with OpenGL. I just didn't have a picture that was any different than the previous ones, so I just threw a couple more on. Uh, I'll be comparing it with DirectX, and we'll look at the same aspects of the pipeline. Everything we did on the previous slide we'll do in OpenGL. But because it's the same principles, as I've suggested, uh, we can cover it quite quickly. And in just one week, we'll be able to cover the same materials we covered in the previous five weeks, because you won't be learning it from scratch. You'll know all this stuff. And we'll just see, okay, now we know how to do all of that in DirectX. How do we do it in OpenGL? And we'll have a look. And we'll see it's actually not radically different. So for those of you who are looking at doing perhaps more general use applications that might be going outside of the games arena, you know, I might choose OpenGL as a, as a possible way of implementing that. You'll get some background there fairly soon on in this. Well, about halfway through. This is, up to now, this is about halfway through the, through the, the module. Okay, once we've done, the, we've done the basics by that point, we've essentially, we've looked at the maths, we've just got some basic 3D stuff that we can manipulate. Now we need to start looking at some more advanced modern techniques. And so as we move into the second semester, I do a, a, a sequence of uh, advanced topics, uh, which, because we know that we can produce powerful and attractive graphics, and we see it all the time in games and in other, other areas, it's, you know, it'd be nice to actually have a look at them. Now, I present all of these topics as advanced topics. You're not actually fully expected to totally be completely off fair with every single last technique and every detail of every last technique. Some of the techniques I show will be, you know, more deeply complex, particularly for the second years than perhaps is second year material. But the idea is to introduce you to the techniques in general rather than perhaps the subtle details of the techniques. And also just to keep you interested and, and motivated to drive forward with the uh, module. It worked well last year. People were a little bit daunted by some of the complexity, but actually were excited enough by the results that were getting on the screen that they were, they were engaged and wanted to go forward with it. So we're looking at vertex and pixel shaders, which are well used in games, but also becoming more relevant in a wide variety of fields now, all the way to databases, curious. We can see a classic picture from, anyone recognize that top picture? I hope so. Half-Life 2 technical demo. So we have to get some game stuff in. Anyone recognize that rabbit? That rabbit is a traditional 3D uh, graphic model that's used in graphics courses, 3D graphics courses since the 1970s, they got this rabbit from somewhere, and if you ever want to show off a technique, you use that rabbit, or the teapot that you'll see on the next slide. Uh, that's a furry rabbit, I don't know whether you can tell that from the distance, and the fur has been generated with a pixel shader, and we'll look how we can do nice pretty things like that. Uh, the cube is actually from one of the samples that we put together, so that's actually, will actually be working with a cube, and it's got nice reflective uh, surface properties, and, and some dirt created, which isn't quite so reflective, and that's fine. Sort of nice. It's an effect called a gloss map that, for the gamers, is they use a lot in fear, and um, we'll be looking at that. Um, so the techniques, oh, there's uh, so many techniques we can do within using these pixel and vertex shaders that are very much of the currency of computer graphics at the moment. Just to name a few, normal mapping, which is what uh, kind of advanced form of bump mapping, which is makes surfaces look bumpy. Tune shading, which is makes things look like cartoons. No pictures of that on the slides. Uh, reflection or refraction to do water effects, like the sort of waterfall effect we've got going there, and so many more, almost anything you can think of. So we're looking at some of the possibilities and potentials there, and looking at some specific examples. 
We'll also, as one of the other advanced topics, we'll be looking at shadows and mirrors. Um, as a pricey to that, we'll be looking at depth and stencil buffers, which is just a technical thing, that's what we're going on at the top. We'll be looking at shadow maps. These are all, the, these are the actual demos you'll be putting together yourself here. I'm not using game graphics or anything. Uh, shadow maps are extensively used in, in games recently and are a very good way of producing real-time shadows. There's the famous teapot. If you do a graphics module, you must use this teapot. It is a, a legal requirement, I believe. Um, and we can see us casting some shadows from one light that we can see and another light that's off screen. Uh, and also a mirror with uh, and it's a dirty mirror, a bit similar to that gloss map we had on the other image. This is actually reflecting the scene and with some dirt on the mirror. I don't know. It's not like a mirror in my bathroom. Um, so we'll be doing a couple of weeks, we'll be looking at various shadow techniques. So we'll be looking at more techniques than just these. These are just illustrative. Um, then we'll look at animation, which is a necessary component of uh, graphics. We won't be able to spend too long on animation. Animation could easily be a module in, in, in and of itself. Uh, because it's, it's a, a rich topic. Um, but we will look at basics of putting the matrices that we did before into hierarchies and animating rigid bodies, that's animatable things that are made of solid bits like this, and uh, animating soft bodies like that. Um, and you can see in there I've got a couple of examples of a skeleton of a, in a character model. Uh, and we can see how his knee is bending, highlighting the section of the knee that flex because of the bending of the interior skeleton, and then we can see a sort of comparison of the bending bits and how the final result looks. So we'll be looking at how these techniques using skeletons and skinning work in reality and actually work with some practical characters and, and do some simple stuff like that. Two weeks back. And finally, one or two other bits and bobs. I'll be looking at graphics hardware uh, and I'll be looking, you know, what are the hardware, what is the hardware that drives all the graphics that we've been, uh, we've been looking at? Uh, what are the actual sort of current technological uh, sort of um, components used. I'll be comparing different systems, PC versus Xbox 360 versus PlayStation 3. I'll do an explicit and specific comparison, and we can come to a final conclusion about which has the best graphics hardware. <coughs> Does anyone have an opinion right now? Who thinks that 360 has the best graphics hardware? PC. Who thinks PC has the best graphics hardware? Well, so hopefully that the gamers may enjoy that. Uh, well, anybody who's interested in games may enjoy that. But I'll be looking at it. I'm not. This is not very fun. I'm going to be looking at it seriously at the actual hardware capabilities and how that actually impacts on the graphics techniques we're using and what these the latest generation of consoles and PCs how it's relevant to them. Um, again, this isn't specifically gamer. I'm very interested in, really in the hardware. I'm not going to be focusing on the games. I'm particularly bothered about that in this module. There's also going to be a couple of review and revision sessions. Halfway through, I'll do a review session to sort of reflect on what we've been covering up until that point. Uh, and at the end of the year, we'll do a revision session prior to the exam. And talking of that, we're going to have one assignment, which will come in after Christmas, just after Christmas, which will be a, almost certainly be making a, uh, kind of, some kind of technical demo in DirectX. Uh, and there'll be a two-hour written exam at the end of the module. Okay, does anyone have any questions about the module content? Anything they'd like to see in it that they haven't seen, or anything that they... It's been, it's, it's still a little bit in flux, and so there is some, last year there was a lot of scope for input from the students, uh, and this, this year there still is. I'm, I'm reasonably relaxed if there's a particular technique or aspect that people would like to see more, or indeed less of, 
Uh, I've got enough flexion within the uh, module to do that. I've got one or two hours of about slack, at, one or two modules of weeks of about slack, I can move up, shift around it. So, uh, you know, talk to me if, you, if there's anything you want to change. Okay, um, just bear with me a moment. So that covers what we're going to be doing over the year. So as a kind of introduction to all of that, part two, I'm going to be looking very briefly at pixels and colors. Okay, what's a pixel? Anybody tell me what a pixel is? Oh dear, I've got a long way to go with you guys. No, it's just a, a five-letter word. Nobody knows. Oh, hello. It's a colored square. That'll do for me. Uh, oh, sorry. Computer displays a grid of small rectangular areas called pixels, and each pixel can display a range of colours. Only correction I'd make to your uh, statement there, Anthony, is it's a coloured rectangle. It's often mistakenly thought that a pixel is perfectly square, they're not. If you ever get an odd monitor, particularly your laptop monitors, they often have very, uh, really quite unsquare pixels. And that becomes quite relevant when we do 3D graphics and we start working with cameras. We'll come back to that point when we find that our monitors have radically non-square pixels and we suddenly get distorted images on one monitor compared to another one. Um, in any case, fairly straightforward, everyone knows what they are. Usually the colours are created on the physical hardware by blending some green, red, green and blue light. Sometimes not, um, but we're not really considering the hardware of our monitors. So we're not concerned about that. So every computer graphic we see is just an array of coloured rectangles. Do we know of any other kind of graphics display that doesn't use pixels? No, they're still pixel-based, essentially. The New York Times. The? New York Times. You mean the bendy ones? Or is there something else? Yeah, uh, Good question. I'll look it up. Vector screens. Vector screens, yeah. Are we going to say the same about Vector? Vector. Anyone? Maybe the, maybe the newbies don't know about us. It's only us old-timers who remember vector screens. So the very early uh, displays were just, it was like a beam of light that essentially just tracked across the screen, leaving better lines behind it. Anyone who remembers old arcade games like Star Wars or anything like that, probably a bit too old for most of you, would um, remember that, but they don't mind, they're not relevant anymore, so we'll move on. So, 99.99999% of displays are made of rectangles. Like so, no real surprise here, pixels made from red, green, blue components. Every pixel essentially blends, they're actually, in most, Monitors, the actual three colours, red, green, blue, are slightly separated, but they're so small that they actually blend in our eye or on our way to our eye, and we end up with blend colours. All images are made from pixels, that is randomly drew a couple of fonts together, and oh look, it's made of a whole bunch of red and blue squares. Uh, well, rectangles, I suppose I should accurately say. Anyone who's zoomed in on Photoshop will know this. Anyone know the difference between a pixel and a texel? I'll talk about texels later. But just in advance of getting there, anyone even know? We'll go there later. Texels are hard to do with textures, pixels on textures. But we'll look at that when we come to look at the textures more accurately. Okay, let's talk about how we specify colours. You should know this from web apps. Um, most common way to define a colour is to specify the red, green, and blue, the red, green, and blue components. Three. Typically, we use three integers. And typically, those integers are in the range 0 to 255, where 0 means we're not going to emit any light, and 255 means we are going to emit some light. So if we've got bright red, that means we're going to emit 255 of red, 0 of green, and 0 of blue. 
which just means we're going to emit lots of red light, so it's going to look red. Uh, we could equally use the range, or sometimes some hardware systems use the range from 0.0, .0 to 1.0, so that's a floating point range, and in that instance, bright red would be 1.0,0,0. There are a couple of other variations, but they're the two massively common versions of them. Uh, now, do we have any painting artists or any, anyone who can paint or draw? No? Good. That makes the next bit easier. Because blending the colours is like light blends. Now, if anyone remembers their GCSE physics, they might, I don't know if they still do, cover the bit about the prism and the lights, white light splitting into colours. Well, it goes the other way too. Colours merging together become white eventually. If you merge all the colours together, you get white light. So if you blend maximum red, green and blue, you'll get white light. That works with light. It doesn't work with ink. Or if you blend loads of red, green and blue, you'll probably get black. In fact, you'll probably get dirty brown. Certainly, the more colours you blend together with ink, it gets darker. And that can often cause some confusion for people who are familiar with artists, you know, more paper art. But when we're blending colours on the computer and in graphics, we're talking about blending them like light blends. So if we blend red, green, and blue maximum, then we'll get white. And if we blend zero red and zero green and zero blue, that means we're emitting no blue light, no red light, no uh, green light. It means we're emitting no light, so we're going to see black. Okay? Now, another example, which might seem obvious or not, depending on how you, your colour awareness is, if I mix red light and green light, I'm going to get yellow light. So, can anyone tell me how I would get purple light? Blue and red. Blue and red. Now, you either know that or you don't. If you don't know it, you just play around with the sliders in your Photoshop or whatever and find what you get. Um, it feels natural to some people. It's, it, uh, but to others it doesn't. It's not important, but it's just to, to be aware that we blend these colours, we get different colours, and it's blended in the same way as light. In fact, if we look at the red, green, blue colours, in particular if we look at them uh, in the range from 0 to 255, although this applies to 0 to 1 as well, but my image is, my picture is, uh, my example is from 0 to 255, we can plot them on three axes. We can plot a red axis, a green axis, and a blue axis. Starting with the origin, which is hidden behind that coloured cube, going up to 255 with blue, down to 255 red, and around to 255 green. And then at every position, we can plot the colour which we would get. So here we're plotting 255 red with zero green and zero blue. They're the same with green, but full green. And in the middle, we get all the, uh, all the myriad of colours in between. And at the top right corner, we've gone 255 in green, 255 in blue, 255 in red, and we get white. And by doing that, we can see that the, all the colours in the, when we use RGB actually form a cube. Uh, and we actually call that the colour space of the red, green, and blue, or the RGB colour space, basically. And we can see it maps to a cube. And in fact, we realise, when we look at this more, more carefully, that we can actually pack these, these various values together, particularly when we're using byte-based values, when we're doing 0 to 255. We realise that, in fact, 0 to 255 is just 0 to FF in X, and if we pack them all together, three hexadecimal bytes, we get this single value, which suddenly should make sense from web apps. Bright red is FF0000, which means it's 255 of red, 0 of green, and 0 of blue. And in fact, that's the most common form to see colours when we're representing them as integers. And in fact, that, should, that maps exactly onto what we know from web apps. One extra thing, though, I hope the third is can tell me what's the OX about. Hex. Tells you it's in hexadecimal. In web apps, I think you just look at them like that, or maybe with a hash sign at the front. Is that right? 
here. Uh, if we put in C++, we put OX to say the number following is hexadecimal. Otherwise, it would think that X was some kind of letter or variable. Okay. Hopefully that should be straightforward. But maybe this one is something new. RGB is not the only way we can represent colors. Um, indeed, there are as many ways of representing colors as you can come up with formula for defining them. And there are a, a, a wide range of other, other color spaces used for other purposes. And the one we often see in graphics is the HSL, or sometimes called the HLS color space, um, where H stands for hue, L stands for lightness, and S for saturation, or saturation and lightness. So we're talking about the hue, saturation, and lightness. Now this is an entire replacement for RGB. Red, green, and blue don't figure in this at all. We represent colors in HSL with a H value, an S value, an L value. But this isn't for red, green, and blue anymore. They, they, that's not relevant. Hue represents the color from the rainbow. Now, this projector isn't projecting the colors quite as richly as I might like. But if we look around the circles of this dual cone, we can see that we're, following, we're going through the spectrum. Red, orange, yellow, green, blue, indigo, violet. Uh, going around each circle. Um, whereas the saturation is how rich the color is, how vibrant it is. So at maximum richness, we get a full rich green. Whereas at minimum, we get gray. So in other words, we pan from gray all the way to green. Easy way to think of that, turning the, adjusting the color on your TV. It's exactly that control. Turn your color down to nothing, you get black and you get grayscale. Turn it up to full, you get really, really rich colors. So the saturation value is essentially the color on your TV. The lightness value is, surprise, surprise, the brightness on your TV. We turn the lightness up, and we, we go right up through this cone of colors, and it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. We go down, and we get darker and darker and darker colors. Um, so that effectively is similar to your brightness on your TV. Now why do you think the color circles get smaller as we go down towards dark colors and up towards light colors? Anyone have any idea why that happens? Well, there's no refraction going on here. This space is just a virtue, it's just an, ide it's just an idealized space. It doesn't represent any real thing in real space. It's just a way of positioning all the colors in a kind of hypothetical space. Well, how many colors are at the very, very, very top? What's the color at the very, very top of the cone? White. How many white colors are there? One. So it's clearly just one color at the top of the cone. Clearly, and it's equal at the bottom, it's black. In fact, as we go towards brighter colors, we'll actually find there's a less, there's a smaller space of colors that are bright, and there's a smaller space of colors that are dark. So it actually makes sense that mid-range colors actually have the widest range of colors. That's slightly analogous to the way hue and eye works, a little bit, but um, also not quite right as well. But it, it certainly explains why the HSL color space is a dual cone, because we have hue as a circle, and then lightness going up and down, saturation going out in the center. Now, artists tend to like that color space. Now, why might that be? An artist tends to dislike RGB and tends to work in the HLS. Why might someone producing graphics for your program prefer to work as HL HSL? More Sorry? Is it more Well, not really. You can argue about that. Um, there, isn't an exact, there isn't an exact perfect mapping from that color space to the other color space. And so this color space is actually rather better at representing colors in this mid-range, but it's actually slightly worse at representing them at the bottom, but it's, it's very, very marginal. It's not really that there's more colors. Is it because it's more like painting colors, like mixing 
It is a little bit more, I mean, see colours. It's just simply overall more intuitive. What does an artist want to know when you start to, when you see draw something? They want to know what colour they're starting. What wants to be basic colour? So you choose something, you choose a hue where you're starting from. And how rich do I want it? How bright do I want it? That's much more natural than thinking, oh, I want a slightly mauve colour. How do you get slightly mauve in RGB? Anyone can tell me? I don't know. I've no clue. Mauve here, well, I'm going, what is mauve? Just said mauve. What colour's mauve? Purple, right, well, I'm starting over there then. <laughs> I'm going to start ra ranging around there. I shouldn't have said so HSL is generally regarded as a rather more intuitive colour space, uh, one that's more natural to work with. Okay. They're not the only two colour spaces. We have a, a wide range of other possible colour spaces we could look at. Uh, I'm not going to go into these in great detail because they're not massively relevant, but it's worth knowing in case we're passing by. There are two uh, spaces closely related to HSL, and if you've ever looked at Photoshop or indeed any other similar applications that work with colour, you may well see HSV or HSB. Uh, they're essentially a single cone version of the, the, the last one. They're very, very closely related to HSL. CMYK is from printing. Now, what's the difference between printing and monitor graphics? You're mixing ink. So suddenly everything I said about mixing ink versus making, mixing live mix uh, comes into, into play. So they're now darkening colours when they blend the colours together. And traditionally, and I don't know why, they use cyan, magenta and yellow. And indeed, sometimes, in, in fact, often it's not, in your printer, if you've got three different cartridges, uh, you will have cyan, magenta and yellow inks in there. And they also throw in an extra black, which is the K. So CMY stands for cyan, magenta. Oh, by the way, cyan is a kind of bright blue. Magenta is purple. Uh, and the black is the K. Anyone know why they have the black in a printer? Sorry? You're, you're right. If you mix the other three, you will basically get black. So why do they put black in there? Well, I, I know, I know, I know. I know. <laughs> I, I know that's not exactly right, but it will do just for a beginning of an explanation. I'll do the detail later. Someone's flagging the other thing. Sorry? If you invent this, this thing, the yeah. orange, if you invent the, this mixing of yeah. black, you are rich because it's, it's not possible. Yeah, and I know what you mean. Is it more cost-effective? That's the right answer, and then I'll come back to what Woody um, was saying. Effectively, it's more cost-effective. You could think of blending the other colours to make black, but actually, A, it won't work. It doesn't actually make black at all. It makes a kind of muddy, browny, grey colour. Um, and B, it's extremely... You're using three inks to get one. What's the point of squirting three lots of ink on if you just say, well, black is so commonly used in printing that they might as well have a whole separate black cartridge. And in fact, if you were representing a... Very. They often, what they do is they work out what the CMY color would be, just using CM, cyan, magenta, and Y, and then say yellow, and then say, well, actually, how much of that color could I make by just squirting some black on the paper, and then subtract that bit off, and add the CMY. It's all a cost-effectiveness thing, essentially. It's basically a way of um, using the minimum of ink, and there are some other subtle reasons as well, but I don't really want to go into the details of printing. One colour space that you may never see, but I want to flag it up because if you ever do, if any of you, for whatever reason, gamers or software engineers, ever want to look at uh, colour that's relevant to the way that eye works, something that's actually been modelled on the physical eye rather than on just mathematical niceties, then this one called lab colour, it's got those asterisks in it, but you just say lab colour, um, is actually the most accurate colour model with regard to how the human eye works, and it's designed to accurately represent what the human eye can see. One of the problems with all the other spaces, 
Uh, is there really isn't a sense there of a of really really bright colours. I mean, you get to white, and you know white on a monitor, it's white, but you you could you know, bright to white or even bright to white. Like if you look at the sun, what colour is that in RGB space? Well, it's kind of not there. It's like turning your your monitor up about 50 times. So lab colour makes an attempt to deal more accurately with very, 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 very overpowered colours, and indeed very, very underpowered colours. Uh, and it also tries to reflect the fact that the way the colours are brought in the eye. I'm not going to worry about the detail of that, but if you're ever looking for something that's very, very accurate for the eye, you should be looking at lab colour. Uh, YUV and YIQ, you might ever so slightly see, particularly if you ever look at movie compression, uh, they're colour spaces that are used for television. Uh, you might occasionally see that. So you might see some early graphic apps. In general, though, we will be spending 99% all of our time using RGB colours, and in general, we'll either be using this for 3-byte hexadecimal values or 4-byte hexadecimal values when we introduce the channel, or we might have three values ranging from 0 to 1. So red is 0.5, green is 0.75. So they're the only uses that we'll make of them. And you should become very, very adept seeing a colour like that and knowing instantly that that means red 2 by 5, green 0, blue 0, because people so naturally present colours like that, as much as they do on the web, that you kind of expect it to know. Okay, that covers it today, I know that was very short, very easy. Um, I said it was good.